You know, someone died, uh, maybe one or two people died in the production of Gone Fishing. I learned that as well. The Joe Pesci movie? Yeah. Really? Some of the stunt work, I guess. I mean, there's a lot of stunts, surprisingly, yeah. in that yeah. movie. It, like, killed two people, and they sued Disney, and Disney won the case. <laughs> and there was, like, no settlement and no, no quote. I looked up, like, yeah, articles about it and was like, no wrongdoing by Disney multiple people dead or whatever on those on a comedy yeah <laughs> that, that darkens that whole movie for me now. speaking of killing people did you see that um john landis is getting like a lifetime achievement award at locarno yeah it kind of sucks <laughs> yeah he killed vic morrow and that little kid yeah or two kids two right? kids and he didn't even make enough good movies to make it okay. The policeman isn't there to create disorder. The policeman is there to preserve disorder. Gentlemen, get the thing straight once and for all. We clear the streets along this route, deploy our men, and create an impassable barrier. A gauntlet, if you will. He won't have a chance. I challenge you to a duel. Oh, the truth, this guy's starting to get on my It's hot out there. Let's, we all walk out there. Very, very, very hot. Open fire! Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Gauntlet. My name is Ryan Saunders, and I'm joined here today with... Andrew Stasiulis. And... Eric Marsh. This is a weekly double feature podcast where one of us chooses a theme, and then the other two hosts pick films in response to that theme. And this week it was my turn to pick the theme, and I picked a topic that I've always had a lot of fun with, and that is the fourth installment. We're taking a close look at two films that were the fourth installments in a series, and I've always been, you know, like a big horror fan. I like franchises that become bloated and lose any semblance of structure or meaning as they've just like kind of grow over the years and different people helmet and then at the same time especially franchises that last you know multiple decades to the point where far into the franchise it barely even resembles the world of the initial films because it's a new world that the films are being made in and so I've always had a lot of fun watching films that are for and beyond in a series. Kind of like a fucked up game of telephone or Pictionary. Or Absolutely, something. yeah. It takes, a, it takes a specific type of energy to, to make it that far. You know, a trilogy is like a nice, neat, compact thing, and the fourth installment is always um, charging forward in a very strange direction. So, Marsh, what film did you bring for the fourth installment? When you, of course, first told me about the topic, you said, I think we're going to do the fourth installment. And immediately, yeah, I'm not really like, I guess, a franchise guy per se. So I was sort of like, oh, no, like, whatever am I going to do? And I made a sarcastic comment to you where I said, uh, oh, man, what am I going to do? It's not like there's uh, a fourth Dr. Mabuza film. And you said there is. Uh, and it turns <laughs> out, yeah, there's obviously quite a few far beyond the first three that Fritz Lang had made. And so immediately, sight unseen, I picked The Return of Dr. Mabuza from 1960. 
Dr. Mabuza is a fictional character, uh, a villain, uh, as it were, created by Norbert Jacques that first appeared in 1921 and was an immediate bestseller and adapted into Dr. Mabuza Der Spieler, The Gambler, from 1922 by Fritz Lang. And that's one of my favorite movies uh, of all time, and as I've told you guys before, I think the original Dr. Mabuza is sort of like the fountain of all crime cinema sort of begins there in a lot of ways for me personally. Yeah, it's anyway. like the Rosetta Stone of crime. You yeah, know? I, honestly. You could really, decipher anything through the lens of Mabusa. Yeah, it, it really is. And I love it. And I love the whole trilogy. And I love the way the trilogy evolves. Each film is very different and distinct. And the Mabuza character as this kind of supervillain is this kind of like ever shifting metaphor. And we'll, we can talk about like sort of what that means. And so, you know, over the course of 50 years, Fritz Lang made three Mabuza movies, and the producer, Arthur Bronner, bought the rights to Mabuza, and he said, Mabuza was the reason I got into producing films. And so he bought the rights to his favorite character. And he, of course, had he produced the third, the Fritz Lang 1000 Eyes of Dr. Mabuza in 1960. And so from then on, he just uh, churned them out in the 1960s in rapid succession. And the Mabuza series was sort of fused with contemporary currents of like the crime procedural that was emerging in Germany at the time. And in fact, the title, Return of Dr. Mabuza, in Germany, it's called Stalnetz Mabuza. Stalnetz is the German dragnet. So again, oh, they're, wow. yeah, they're literally advertising this movie as like dragnet plus Dr. Mabuza. And that's, so that's sort of like what it was called. And that, again, that sort of coalesced in the 1960s with this new kind of German crime film, Krimis, as they call them with a K, that were just like adaptations, pulp, comic book type stuff that really like became, you know, dominated the market. And so the Mabuza series sort of fell under that kind of like subgenre of movies. And yeah, so that was the fourth installment of, of many more, including Jesus Franco and Claude Chabral also have, you know, later uh, sort of oddball entries into the Mabuza series. So I think there's over like 10 of them total now. Uh, yeah, that was my pick. Just a reminder, what year did Fritz Lang die? Did he die before Thousand Eyes got released? I should have checked. No, no, he lived into the 70s. He oh, wow. So he, would have, so he would have seen the, potentially, maybe he resisted the idea of going to see the, <laughs> yeah. the bastards of, of his, his own it. family. You know what you know? he went to see? Uh, prostitutes, which he loved. Sure. <laughs> That's kind of how it felt uh, watching The Return of Dr. Mabusa, like <laughs> visiting a prostitute. Like it wasn't your true love, but like it's still like it was satisfactory and gave you the pleasures you needed. Absolutely. Very, very functional in a way, you know. Mm -hmm. What else is there to cover then? <laughs> <laughs> you hit it right on the head. Um, so I had a hard time picking a fourth installment. I honestly was racking my brain. And then uh, it was so obvious. Uh, George Romero's Land of the Dead, the fourth film in his Dead series, as it's known. Uh, George Romero is, I believe, like many others, the, the, the godfather of the zombie film. And 2005 brought his triumphant return back to the genre or subject or whatever you want to call it, the creatures that he really like popularized in the world of cinema. So Land of the Dead, the fourth film in the series, picks up 
after the events of the first three, by this point in the world, zombies are more or less zombies have taken over everything, and humans are now banded together in these sort of small enclaves. And the, the one that's featured in this film is one that's in Pittsburgh. And anyone who knows anything about George Romero knows why he would choose Pittsburgh. He says, of course, you know, it was because of its its particular geographic location. It's bordered on two sides by rivers, and it has a sort of small strip of of land. So in his mind, it's very easy to defend. But also, George Romero loves Pittsburgh, right? That's more yeah. or less his hometown. So it was it was a return of of two different sorts, I guess. A return to the the zombie film, and a return to beloved Pittsburgh. So in this film, we have a, a clear sort of class structure that's set up in this enclave, this sort of human survivor town. And we have the wealthy living in this uh, luxury skyscraper known as Fiddler's Green. And the rest, the majority of the people in this in this uh, outpost, are the poor, the lower class, who exist outside of this luxury skyscraper. But also, there's a third group that comes uh, to play a, a major role in the events of this film, and that is the dead themselves. And in this film, we see the dead finally sort of organize. Uh, we could talk more about this later, but they've developed uh, over the many years that they've been around. And this time, they've got a leader, and this leader is going to take them on, I guess you could say, a, a, a revenge mission, but uh, more or less uh, plays out like an uprising, and they decide to storm this area of Pittsburgh. And there's a lot of human drama, there's a lot of... As Violence. Always. There's a lot of yeah. There's a lot of nastiness, a lot of goriness, and uh, if you know anything about the George Romero films and the George Romero zombie series, particularly, it's not really going to end well for anybody. So yeah, uh, I'm a big, huge fan of this film. I know some other folks are uh, as well, but I think it's a really interesting film, particularly because it's also the biggest budget that I think Romero ever had on a film, certainly the biggest budget for any of his zombie films. And that alone made it a very interesting experience for him and a very sort of troubled one. And we can we can get into some of those details uh, today. But it, it's got some very big stars. For those of you who are familiar with George Romero films, big stars is not something I think you often associate with them. But this has Dennis Hopper in one of his last roles. Uh, it's also got John Leguizamo in it, Asia Argento, and as Marsh and I were discussing, every mom's favorite, Simon Baker. The of, mentalist. Yeah, mentalist fan. Moms love Simon Baker. Uh, <laughs> that's right. So yeah, we can talk all about that, but, but that's the film that I decided to bring to the table. You know, one thing I was wondering about Land of the Dead and as I was talking about things that I like about fourth installments is um, when fourth installments seem to arrive many, many years later than some of the initial films because, yeah, Dawn of the Dead was 78 and then Day of the Dead was 86, um, 85 or 86. And then, yeah, Land of the Dead here, now we're in the, the 21st century. Like, so much time has passed. Yeah. To, to say the, nothing of Night of the Living Dead, which is 68. 
Right, of course. But then that was something that I was actually wondering, you know, when we when we're saying this film takes place, you know, however many years after the first one. To me, it feels so far removed that I was even questioning like is this supposed to be the same world as the first 3 films or is he just riffing on the idea because it was like curious the idea that it's now been going on for about 40 years and at least what we're seeing it's just sort of evolved into like a single skyscraper did you did you read it as like this is with those other because I re- ended up rewatching the other ones leading up to it and it feels so far removed because it is literally so far removed in years compared to the return of Dr. Mabuso which is a literal year after the last Fritz Lang one it, they look so similar those two films because they were literally back to back and shot by the same cinematographer oh interesting okay I uh, did not know that but yeah, so you did you did read I hear your Land question. of the Dead? Yeah. Yeah, I hear your question. I mean, the the short answer is like no, for obvious reasons, <laughs> you know, because it's not a period film, right? And if if it was like time frozen since the the initial zombie outbreak, everybody would still be wearing 1960s fashion, you know, right. and and you'd only see 60s cars on the road and stuff like that. So I mean, that would, again, for a guy who's often worked with low budgets, make things very complicated, yeah. more complicated than anybody wants. So I, I don't definitely know. You well, know. I think it's more fun to interpret it as just being 20 years after Day of the Dead, because there are some, you know, like the, the most obvious thing to me, and I hadn't, I hadn't seen Land of the Dead before, but I did appreciate how it picks up where Day of the Dead left off with the zombie who has the gun at the end of Day of the Dead and he's sort of been trained and sort of learned and been kind of like you know guided into something other than just like flesh eating mode right and so with Day of the Dead leaving off with yeah this zombie's like shooting a pistol at the racist guy or whatever and then in Land of the Dead it starts with okay well now here is one zombie who's sort of learned well, or evolved, yeah that's a good point there's right? there's a there is a trajectory of what you're talking about yeah. through the entire series right so in the first film in Night of the Living Dead nothing is really understood nothing is known they're just these sort of killing machines that seem to only want to eat human live flesh or something like that and and that's all that it is but already in Dawn of the Dead they start to categorize these things and understand them a little bit more and so in Dawn of the Dead you know there's all that stuff about instinct and right. they're you know, returning to the mall because that's where they you'd normally went right you know, you know? and yeah. and that they can use crude objects and they aren't as maybe simple as we initially thought which then builds into day of the dead there's this doctor character who's trying to come up with a solution and and basically all of his uh experiments are in domestication and him saying no look they they're like us yes they're they're cannibalistic and they're, you know, dead. They're technically well, not even alive, that they're like us. They are us. They are us. Yeah. Absolutely. So, like, it's established there by this character, this doctor, that he's saying, look, these things are are evolving. They're thinking. They're, there's some sort of instinct in there that recalls their previous lives their 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 previous forms so by the time we get now to land of the dead romero has has taken this even further where you know this whole opening scene establishes that you know there's this zombie character known as big daddy who romero calls the hero of the film and i think it's a really interesting point he's sort of working 
at a gas station. Going through the motions. Yeah, like some zombie steps on the, the bell that rings and he comes out and walks to one of the gas pumps, you know, and it's like, holy shit. They're just trying to relive their their previous existence. There's like a band. There's like some brass band that's like standing in a gazebo. And then on top of that, the zombie Big Daddy, this central character, he gets uh, he he senses that there's humans around, and he calls out to a couple other zombies, and they say, "Holy crap, they're communicating." So Romero by Land of the Dead is now taken. I think this trajectory to its logical conclusion for him, which is that they're now able to communicate, they're they're able to organize, they're able to eventually, as the film will show you, work together. And yes, use guns and operate tools and get around uh, defenses and that sort of thing. I think one of the funny things that's implied with that too, where, yeah, it picks up directly with Day of the Dead, where Bub sort of is now Big Daddy. Like, it's like following up with that but at the same time Romero he shows in Day of the Dead that there is all this research going on by the doctor to try and understand these creatures and it almost feels as if that subplot is abandoned but then like because it is abandoned in Land of the Dead it's like a funny implication that they just stopped caring and just tried to live in luxury and take care of themselves like mm-hmm. there were there were no resources allocated to try and figure out how they could you know keep surviving by understanding them they instead took the very human route of just living in comfort and then trying to kind of preserve a ruling elite structure and then like kind of leaving everyone else to be the mindless denizens that are sort of fodder in the town below. It also, though, again, I mean, it builds, I mean, it's it's important to note, right, that, you know, when you look at a lot of, I think, franchises and series, that there's some turnover, not just in directors, but in writers and, you know, different people get involved and they sort of go, now this is going to be my take on the series or whatever. But this is one in which, I mean, it was Romero's show from his first film in this series to the last film in this series. And so all of this world all of the rules in this world, they're, they're, they're his and they're entirely in his imagination. And I think there is like this very clear like trajectory from that because even in Day of the Dead to the point that you're making, Ryan, like, you know, when there's this big disagreement between the military that are trapped in this bunker with this like scientific team, Rhodes, Captain Rhodes, the leader of the military group is like, what the fuck? Why are we even bothering with research? We need to just fucking shoot every single one of these fucking things in the head. But the doctor says, how are you going to do that? The time to do that would have been at the very beginning, but we didn't do that. And now we're overrun. So we have to learn to exist with them because he says, by my count, it's something like 400,000 to one at this point. You're going to shoot them all in the head. How the fuck are you going to do that? Where are you going to find the ammo for that? So I think it's building from your point there where Romero is saying, okay, well now if we're building from that, where would we be? Well, they can't go on the offense. All we can do is try to carve out a place to exist. And really, that's sort of at the core of this film, this idea of like coexistence and our issues with coexistence uh, and the clashes that result from people's, I think, inabilities to reconcile with that, to come together. Yeah, and then, of course, you know, having Romero helm each of the films is appealing in that it kind of has a consistent vision about, you know, not only the rules of the world, like you were saying, but also his own like edge and personal take on all of it. Right. There's like a consistent satire 
that like runs throughout all of the films with Dawn of the Dead naturally, you know, the shopping mall, obviously, like, oh, it's just a shopping mall full of, of zombies. And then he's sort of like taking on the military and science and Day of the Dead. And then this one has all these weird, you know, Bush era overtones to it. Some that I think are more successful than others. I mean, at one point, you know, Dennis Hopper literally says, we do not negotiate with terrorists. And there's also another really weird moment where John Leguizamo says he like makes a reference to jihad yes he does which was also part of you know like and again you can't really like hold it accountable for this but i was wondering i was like okay like i know obviously you know holy war and jihad existed well before the initial zombie attack in 1968 but it being a part of the vernacular of just like a a dopey yeah yeah, like a dopey (laughs) you know heavy bro posturing piece of shit guy you know like I don't really buy that, but you know, it it is kind of funny that he was peppering the film with all of that, like giving it that contemporary edge and at least just, you know, personal obsessions that he kind of, you know, held on to. Well, and that's, that's exactly it for Romero because he's, he, you know, he said that in interviews after the success of Night of the Living Dead and certainly after the success success of Dawn of the Dead. You know, he said, like, everybody just wanted me to do that over and over again, like offers that he got, you know, he said, everybody just wanted me to remake Dawn of the Dead. They just wanted more and more of that. And he said, you know, if you look at these films, I mean, there's 10 year time gaps between these films. And, you know, he said something along the lines of like, well, you know, I would come back to these things when I had an idea. You know, it wasn't just the zombies for him, right? It was something he wanted to explore, a a different issue, an idea of society, of culture, of politics, right? Dawn of the Dead for him, he said the idea came when he saw the very first shopping mall in Western Pennsylvania. Somebody invited him out. He was like, you got to take a look at this thing. And the first shopping mall in Western Pennsylvania, he said, was like 1977. And he was just standing there looking at the shopping mall and went like, holy shit, look at this thing. So that's where that film came. And then you know, by the time with day, it was, it was a similar, it was a similar thing. And, and by the way, I should point out that Romero has said that his favorite of the, the entire series for him making it was day of the dead. Like that's his favorite film of that entire series. Yeah. It's, it might not be my favorite, but I am like open to the argument that it is like far and away the best one. Um, I definitely think it's the most intelligent and that, I mean, you know, Maybe this doesn't matter, but, like, that was something I do struggle with with Land of the Dead. I find it, like, very flaccid in comparison to Day of the Dead. I think it, like, kind of loses its bite. And in a way, like, I'm glad that Romero never made, like, a Trump-era dead film. Just because I I, I feel like he, it just, it's a little too loose and kind of, it just, he's, he's, he was losing something over the years, but I do think that that, like, anger and that peak comes with Day of the Dead. It's, like, it's a real vicious downer movie. Well, it's very, it's very cynical. Like, mm-hmm. it's, and it's also a Cold War era film, right? So, on a certain reading, Day of the Dead is also about, like, the idea of the end of the world from dumbass politics and nuclear war. And that, what would we be after that? Just huddled in bunkers screaming at each other about, you know, how did this happen? Whose fault? Uh, Can we, is there anything we get? It's like, no, there's nothing we can do. Like we fucking blew it. But I actually think that for me, you know, land of the dead is a, I think it's his most overtly leftist take in the entire series. B, I think it's one of his more hopeful ones, you know, because the message at the ending is about like coexistence, about living together and about like recognizing that. So those ideas for me carry over into land of the dead, where you have this 
basically like populist revolution that sort of takes place where the rich who are huddled in their, their, their safe, secure tower, they, you know, all that comes crashing down and these zombies, you know, represent an angry people, an angry populace, right? That is, that is now had enough and are, are striking back. And so for me, like, that's, I think why I've always kind of really liked Land of Dead and appreciated it because Politically speaking, I, I love the message in it. Like, I am rooting for those fucking zombies, like, the whole way through. Well, they don't really have any class solidarity because they destroy all the poor people uh, immediately. They just eat them. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I think that's also, that's also like, part of, that's also part of, like, a critique of capital, right? That, like, the people in the tower want all of us to yes, tear each other apart. For sure. Like, that, it benefits them for all of us to be outside of Fiddler's Green you know, at each other's throats and ripping each other to shreds while they're drinking champagne and yeah. smoking cigars in their ivory tower. You Absolutely. Know? Because even at the ending, that's what Simon Baker says when there's, you know, after all the, the chaos and he sees some of the zombies and one of the characters is going to like shoot at them. He says, no, they're just looking for a place to live just like us, you know? And it's like that realization of like, okay, let's all just back off. Like you guys can do your thing. We're going to go do our thing. I um, mean, really, again, it's it's the fault of all the people in Fiddler's Green, and particularly Dennis Hopper's, you know, Bush character or whatever you want to call him. Like, if he's got all those resources, what is he doing with them other than bunkering up into this tower and keeping everyone outside and murdering people and sending their bodies to the garbage dump? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. But I mean, I hear you, right? Like, I definitely yeah, because like it is. Yeah, I was I was sort of conflicted watching it because I did I did like that impulse by Romero to not do the same thing again but I do think the film loses some of its verve because it is not properly speaking a siege film and that's a huge deal in the construct of these movies right the first three are siege films defend the house defend the mall defend the military installation otherwise we die maybe we can escape and that's sort of like, you know, it gives it a lot of sort of tension and suspense and narrative drive. And the, because the world of Land of the Dead is bigger in scope than any of the previous Dead films, uh, it has this sort of, yeah, this like give and take where sometimes it's kind of a siege film, but it's not. You're out, you're in, you're driving all around. So, yeah, it does have like a different vibe to it. And I do think, speaking of the different vibe, I think the biggest difference is that it is, you can feel it's big budget and it's a Hollywood film in the way that the previous Dead films were not Hollywood films. Yeah. It sort of lacks the 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 local flavor of like seeing just like random Pennsylvania people dressed up like zombies, yeah. the sort of like ragged camera work and yeah, like the low other budget. Yeah, the other ones like look cheap in a super appealing way. Yeah, and, and he's really always had a very like fluid, casual style. Like he's never overdoing it with the visuals, you know, function always with Romero. And I guess it surprised me how like Hollywood stylish yeah. Land of the Dead was, right? It's a lot of like crane shots and dolly shots and CGI. And so, it, yeah, it, it's definitely... A, a big sort of stylistic departure, I think, from the previous films. But obviously, the heart and soul of Romero, the story, the world, 
is still there. So I'm kind of like conflicted because obviously, look, I, I love the sort of like low budget uh, Romero vibe. I mean, there's really nothing better in the history of American horror. Right. You know? For sure. Uh, yeah. I mean, I guess and that's that... a high bar. right? But it's but he, he talked about that. You know, like he addressed that. Like he said, I didn't need the money that they gave me. And and if anything, like, you know, he, he regrets having that budget sure. because he said he got hampered in taking that money. And he said, now there were so many people who were weighing in that never did before. And I, again, one of the things that I really admire about George Romero is his like ferocious independence. Like this is a guy that always wants to have final cut. He wants to make the film his way. He's turned down throughout his career, like so many offers to like make Hollywood films. And he said specifically because of that, you know, like he didn't want to be hampered in, in the way that basically this film was where certain decisions were outside of him. I mean, even the whole cast, he didn't want to cast any of those people, you, you can know? Tell. Yeah. And, and he said like, <laughs> as soon as we cast them, like he's like, I now was really burdened. And he said, there's something really funny. I read an interview where he was saying like, he was just talking about the budget, you know? And he's like, yeah. And you know, people sit there and they go, well, you had all this money. He goes, yeah, but a lot of the money was now going to things that I would never have spent the money on. One thing he kept talking about was like craft services. He's like, my God, these stars, like their demands. And there's a, a, a specific quotation. Awesome. No, seriously, there's a, there's a specific quotation that he said in an interview. He said, look, we could have easily bought another five days of shooting if we'd been a little more judicious and if they'd eaten a little less lobster. <laughs> I mean, if that isn't like a lunch pail independent yeah. mentality, like, so I, I hear what you're saying, but I, I think he's also very much, well, you know, he said it like yeah. it was one of his least favorite productions because of that, you know, and actually one of the biggest line items that he bitched about, uh, and I think rightfully so, was uh, Dennis Hopper's cigars. <laughs> so like, apparently he said Dennis Hopper had these ridiculous line items about like these really expensive cigars he would smoke so I, I mean I see what you're saying like I, I totally hear that and like you know Romero himself is like look I could have made that movie for for two million dollars you know I could have made that movie for two million he's like I think it would have been a better film hearing you say his frustrations about the film are very much my frustrations in the act of watching it because I think it's a film that has its heart in the right place um, like you mentioned, you find it to be one of the most overtly leftist of the films, but I find it to be so formally conservative. And it's like that clash that I, I guess I, you know, is seen in a lot of like big budget productions. And that can be extremely frustrating. It, it was really funny when I was uh, watching these and rewatching them. I rewatched them with with Molly and she had never seen Dawn or Day of the Dead before. And she was like overjoyed. She just like loved them. And she was so certain she had never seen Land of the Dead before. For, and I was like, I think you did, because I saw it at the Music Box Theater here in Chicago that does a 24-hour horror movie marathon. And yeah, I and that was back in like 2017 when I went and saw it. And so we're watching the film, and Molly's like, oh yeah, I definitely didn't see this. And then she sees the character that has like half his face scarred and burned. And she's like, oh, I, we, I know him. Like, what is he from? And I'm looking at his cast list and I'm like, I, I mean, like, I don't know. He was in Desperately Seeking Susan. We watched that together. And she's like, oh, yeah, that must be it. And then like it started going on and she's like, oh, hold on a second. I kind of remember this Mad Max type caravan. Yeah, I've seen this before. I, I remember this guy from this movie <laughs> i was like yep see exactly there you go. um and then she fell asleep at like the 40 minute mark 
But you know, it was still <laughs> it was it was quite fun revisiting mm-hmm. it again. Yeah, I mean, I in no way think this is for me like as good as the the first three. I think the original, you know, trilogy, if you want to call it that, um, is they're they're amazing films. They really are. Um, and but yeah, he does still manage to sneak in a lot of interesting ideas and a lot of things he's preoccupied with. And I think we've sort of hit on the biggest failings of the film, which is sort of like the commercial look of it and then also a cast that he like clearly didn't want to cast you know and i and so they it's, it's great that you like brought that up that he has even like talked about that because there does seem to be a bit of a disconnect and it's even i feel like dennis hopper is almost even kind of underutilized in it he does seem extremely tired and fatigued throughout the whole thing and it seemed like a performance or a character that was designed for a bit of a high energy performance and it doesn't feel like he had the stamina to give us that but at the same time you know watching the film I kept thinking like let's get back to Dennis Hopper like I want more scenes inside this building because those are the ones that have the bite but what little we get you know is, is still fun with yeah. him I again you know I don't think for him the idea of using Dennis Hopper was even in his mind you know that I think it was a situation where he was just sort of handed all these people and he doesn't have a track record of of working with actors of that caliber and I think he felt very disconnected from what I've read in like interviews about this with everyone with these stars you know that they all had their own ways of approaching things and their own demands and and he was just not not the kind of guy to deal with it you know Mm -hmm. it it almost felt like they were bringing with them their own idea of their own image which i thought was kind of funny and we're talking about this film coming so many decades later and feeling very much of its time both in terms of like the subcultures represented and the style i mean when aja argento shows up she looks like a 2005 hot topic babe you know she's got like leather on she's got like the goofy haircut yeah so it almost seems like there's like a little bit of like actors as auteurs or at the very least their agents insisting upon like how these people should be looking in the film you know at least of all the people that he cast the one that makes the most sense is Asya Argento because of his relationship with Dario I mean they are they were um before he died you know they were very good friends like he said dario was you know a really great friend to him and dario was largely responsible for dawn of the dead being made i guess in that respect like i i see you know her inclusion in this as sort of like the one bit of casting that makes sense for him like considering that he likes working with family he says you know he likes working with family he likes working with friends he likes working with people that he knows and you know from my own perspective as as a struggling independent filmmaker too like I understand that you know I think that when you are able to work with people that you care about and that care about you like that comes through in the film there's certain magic that that comes from that that you can't get for all the money and the biggest stars in the world, you know, a bunch of free agents or whatever. You know? Yeah, Romero that handmade with... sort of quality, quote unquote, of Romero's film that makes, you know, so many of them feel like family affairs or just like, yeah, a bunch of 
bunch of Pennsylvanians running wilds. Uh, Very personal work. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But we should talk about, I guess, sort of the vague outline of the story, because I think that'll, yeah, sort of like bring some stuff out, right? So the film largely concerns this, I guess you could call like a, an armored personnel vehicle, this kind of like convoy, this group of people who their job is to get supplies. So they go out of the city and they hunt down zombies and supplies to bring them back to the high rise in the sort of like J.G. Ballard setup they have or the Griffith, like rich, poor uh, dichotomy inside the city. And so they've been roaming around getting all these supplies through the effective use of fireworks, which dazzle and uh, sort of stun the zombies into uh, sleep or whatever, this sort of hypnotic state. How come you guys always go out at night? Wouldn't it be safer in the daytime? Fireworks, kid. These dentists can't keep their eyes off them. And again, hot off our discussion of Independence Day last week, here, of course, Romero making uh, an explicit reference to shock and awe, mm -hmm. right? And again, the point that, that ultimately the film reaches where Romero sort of positioning the zombies like as Iraqis or as this sort of oppressed people, that comes in right away, right, with the fireworks. But again, very quickly, like all of the dead films, the human versus human element is going to bring things down much quicker and faster than any zombie, right? And this is specifically the John Leguizamo character uh, who Cholo. is... Cholo. Yeah, Cholo. He is uh, sort of like looking to get out of this convoy life and into the high rise through his backroom dealings with uh, Kaufman, the Dennis Hopper sort of evil CEO character. And so he, yeah, so he's sort of like this greedy kind of materialistic guy who wants to be a part of the rich society. And he comes into conflict with the Simon Baker character, Riley, who is... Yeah, you know, kind of like just heroic, good, boring, yeah. good guy. <laughs> Hunky lead. For the moms. You know? Yeah, for the yeah. moms, right? The mentalist coming in here. And he's just sort of, yeah, he's got like this vague, like, oh, my brother, you know, was turned into a zombie backstory. But he is, yeah, the sort of like liberal kind of trying, wants to help poor people he's getting like medicine for people that's my favorite scene of the movie where he's like here's some here's some me medicine for your boy and the boy's like <laughs> <laughs> yeah he's shuffling medicine to like the radical street preacher uh, and he all he wants to do is just get out of the city and be alone he wants to go to canada and so everyone you know typical romero the humans all have their own sort of like selfishly motivated interests and that ultimately is going to sort of like set off a series of actions in which then the zombies are you know being led by the big daddy zombie they're sort of coming towards the city at this moment where all these humans are backstabbing each other and sort of striking out on their own and they break into the city and, yeah. ca and cause mass destruction so that's sort of like you know again it is more plotty than other uh you know the previous yeah, I mean, dead I, entries well like in a, a big incident in that too is john leguizamo wants his own like apartment in the sky rise because yes. he's working directly for dennis hopper and he's like i've been taking out your trash like well how about it well, this is very extravagant yeah well i can afford it oh with the 20 grand you owe me from last night and the money from all the other nights together i got enough for my own place you mean here in the green yo why not i'm sorry mr tomorrow but 
There's a very long waiting list. Well, how long? Well, this is an extremely desirable location. Space is very limited. You mean restricted, don't you? And, and it's then, implied earlier, too, that it's a whites-only oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. skyscraper. And I think you, you very clearly see that yes. in any of the images of the crowd compared to certainly the zombies and the, the, the poor people themselves. But I think especially the zombies. The zombies are, are such a diverse crowd right. compared to yeah, the only, everything the else. The only person of color that's like inside the skyscraper is Dennis Hopper's butler, or well, the guy that's like taking care of his hotel. He's a servant. Yes, and, and very clearly, uh, you know, a sort of throwback to a, a very different era, you know, exactly. a, and a yeah. conscious choice. I think, again, Romero deserves credit uh, for a lot of things. And I think one of the things that that he sometimes doesn't get enough credit for is, you know, going back as far as Night of the Living Dead, making some bold casting choices, especially for, you know, people of color, women, you know, people. He's always had a multicultural vision of America, sort of like John Carpenter as well. It's Mm -hmm. sort of just always been a part of his films and always a big part of his films too. It's not colorblind casting per se. He works in all this sort of like you have the racial tensions of the United States are explicit, especially in Day of the Dead and Dawn of the Dead, yeah. but especially in Day of the Dead. Where, oh, yeah. Uh, and, and even this, right? I mean, like. Well, he he wanted his his original vision for this was a black lead for Riley. Like he wanted right. a black actor to wasn't, play that. It wasn't named Riley then, I'm sure. Right, well, yeah, whatever his <laughs> name was. But, you know, he was like, you know, he was like, I'd like to get a, a, you know, a black actor to play this character. And the studio shut him down. And the studio hid behind. They said, well, you know, black leads don't really sell very well in Europe. That's what they told him. Like, can you believe that shit? So then he said, okay, well, I'm in a big daddy he cast as a, as a black actor. And then, you know, again, when you see what happens in the film with big daddy and leading this sort of like violent, angry revolt. I mean, again, I think it's the return of the repressed. Yeah. yeah, Storming and, and taking this whole thing down, you know, and just smashing this, the system and the city, the racist upper class, you know, I mean, Dennis Hopper's character, like is just such a piece of shit, you know? Yeah. The big daddy character is so interesting because in the beginning of the film, he's shown to have like instincts of self-preservation or at least preservation amongst his collective. Right. And there's like that anguished cry when he's trying to get everyone to get on the ground. You know, when the fireworks are going off, you know, he's he's essentially saying like, everyone get down, get down. And then everyone's getting mowed down because they're using it as a way to like, yeah, just like sort of clean the streets. And there's even that bit where he tries to like get his buddy to go down and his head gets severed. And so in a, in a, (laughs) in a moment of like sadness, big daddy, like squashes his buddy's head and then like screams a cry of agony. It's certainly never implied in like Day of the Dead when they're looking at like the animal core of the brain that hasn't been completely decomposed that they do have that empathy. So it is interesting that it it is, you know, suggested that they're evolving and, you know, developing and that there might be a leader at one point. Big Daddy Zombie who can remember his past lives. Yeah. Because <laughs> right. yeah. I love that. That comes back later when, you know, ultimately, you know, Hopper 
comes face to face with Big Daddy Zombie and he's in his car and he's right next to a fuel pump and he just immediately sees it and goes back into like gas station attendant mode but then he fills Dennis Hopper's car up with gasoline. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> that sequence, I, I love that sequence in the film when the zombies finally arrive they work their way through the, um, unfortunately, well, he through gets the, the, the jackhammer too to go through into the high rise, which is yeah. a great scene when he discovers the jackhammer. And then he's like, oh, this is sweet. I'm going to take it. And then it's just is unplugged. So he just uses it as a blunt yeah. object. He's like, ah, fuck it. Yeah, probably <laughs> do the really same funny. thing. And then when the zombies arrive, you know, led by Big Daddy, and they, they come to this, this massive luxury apartment building, Fiddler's Green, the high rise. They they arrive at like the entrance and they pause for a minute and they're all just like looking in with like wide eyed wonder. I was thinking again about Romero and the point that he was making about, you know, the zombies and their past lives and instincts and things that they remember. And again, you know, for me, it's another sort of little like kind of I guess you can call it like a leftist critique or whatever you want to call it. But like they've never seen anything like this before. They've never been in a place like this. They don't recognize it. They look at it and wonder, like, what the fuck is all this? Like, they, they're sort of awed by it. And then they just, of course, smash their way in and then tear the fucking place apart. But when Big Daddy finally arrives and Hopper sees him in the, like, in the hallway or something, Hopper turns and yells at him, you have no right! You have no right! And I was just like, again, yeah, like, it's like, no right to what? You know, like, no yeah. right to... Exist. Right, you know, like... Because I think, you know, like, correct me if I'm wrong, but doesn't Hopper say that earlier, like, even in reference to just the poor humans outside? He's like, they have no, you know, they have no right. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, so he's very much portrayed as this kind of, yeah, like capitalist CEO slash tower owner, you know? Because he talks about it, right? He's like, I built the fences around the city. I turned this place. You know, this very, like, bootstrappy kind of, like, business tale. Like, I'm the rugged businessman who will kill who killed his way literally to the top of right. the skyscraper. Yeah, there's that great scene where, you know, he thinks everything is going to shit and uh there's some other like rich asshole who like confronts him in a hallway <laughs> and it's such a funny scene. I mean, like that's probably Hopper's best moment. Like this rich guy is just like, "What's going on? I th- are we all getting out of here? What are you just like leaving?" And then he's like, Oh my God, look over there. And the guy turns around and just shoots him in the fucking head. Right. Like, so it's like good. Hey, the oldest trick in the book, man. What's in the bags? Money. Who's money? Watch out, get out, quick. And then like two seconds later, he gets a phone call from, from Riley basically saying like, hey man, it's all good. I got dead reckoning. Like things are going to be fine. And Hopper's on the phone and he's like looking down at this guy and he's just like, oh, I really wish you would have called me like two minutes earlier. Yeah. <laughs> it's such a funny little moment, you know, like it's great. And that's why that's like one of the moments where Dennis Hopper's really like sleepy, fatigued performance adds to the comedy of it because yeah. it's such a low effort. Like, hey, look, look over there. Boom. <laughs> like, yeah. It's so fucking God funny. But also in that moment that you're talking about, Marsha, again, I think also like in Romero's own mind, like, you know, Romero didn't make billions of dollars in his career. You know, Romero was a was a, a guy who struggled financially to make his movies and to make the movies he wanted his whole way. And so I, I feel a lot of this pent up after, you know, 40 years of, of struggling in this system, that, that same sort of frustration that, uh, you know, people have on the lower classes 
who are led to in the lower classes who are led to believe that there is such a thing as upward mobility. Sure, because that's the lesson you know Cholo, the Leguizamo character, very pointedly learns is that he doesn't even have a, a chance. You know, it was a foregone conclusion that he would never be included uh, in that sort of societal situation. And so, yeah, like everyone is, you know, has a, a reason or grievance to like rage against this unfair. Uh, you know, post-apocalyptic society, which is also our society, yeah. right, you know? Mm -hmm. Romero said, like, that consciousness became more and more a part of it, of yes. saying, like, I'll make these movies when I have something to say, when I'm mad about something, yeah. when I'm... When I'm mad about Reagan, when I'm mad about, yeah, the, shopping Iraq, malls. the Iraq war, <laughs> when I'm mad about malls. Absolutely. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I do... Yeah, I, I liked a lot, yeah, that it, of course, it remains... His film, his vision, his universe, even after all these years. Yeah. Yeah. So in that sense, I mean, you know, you if you're losing that as like the scale of judgment, it is a successful fourth film in a franchise. Well, I've even more than seen... that, Ryan, it was actually a very successful film that grossed forty <laughs> million dollars on a fifteen million dollar budget. So Yeah. yeah. Got him. Yeah. I want to know who was eating all the lobster on Land of the Dead set. Because, like, clearly. Oh, it was Riley, of course. I'm calling out the mentalist. For yeah, that that's one. a. He's a lobster freak. There's no doubt about it. Well, I was going to say earlier, you know, to connect Land of the Dead back to Day of the Dead, too, is sort of like if you look at Day of the Dead kind of as this Reagan era film, right? This is the beginning of, yeah, the sort of hardcore push to cut social services so you wonder ryan what happened to the research reagan you know in romero's mind going like oh yeah of course they chose might over right you know right. they chose guns over yeah. health i do have one more question about land of the dead for both of you do either of you have a particular favorite gore gag in the film is there a death or a dismemberment that you um, that really charmed you. There's well, some really good ones in this. Well, I really like just what came to my mind immediately is not really a kill, but when all of the zombies are attacking, uh, dead reckoning the the you know the the truck on the drawbridge, and the legless zombie is hanging off the ladder yep. on the back, and it's the classic moment where you're like, they're free, but. Well, they're not that free because there's a legless zombie that's crawling on top of their vehicle and, of course, poses a, a major threat a few minutes later and then is, you know, neutralized. But yeah. uh, just love that, that image, you mm -hmm. know, hanging off the back of the truck. That's yeah. a good one. One of the things I do admire so much about it is that it does use practical effects so heavily. However... I still think my favorite gag in I the know film where you're going, 100%. is done with CGI, and that's the headless zombie who flips his head forward oh, to bite yeah. the arm. It's just, it's so inspired, and it's clear that, like, there was no real way it would have worked as well if they had, like, used a robotic head or something that could have bitten at, like, that exact moment. It, But it's just, yeah, it, it works because it's so inspired. When it's, it's like, so shot... Funny. With that low angle, so it's this like surprise the way the mm -hmm. head sort of snaps back. So yeah, it's it really gag, works. You know? Yeah. So yeah, I think you know we've done a good job at sort of discussing how Land of the Dead is the result of you know a cohesive vision over the years by 
a single person, right? We've got Romero working on the series from 1968 all the way, you know, well beyond 2005 when Land of the Dead comes out. It's a series that covers, you know, quite a few years and different cultural movements. Now with Dr. Mabusa, that was also a series that covered, you know, many years initially when Fritz Lang was at the helm. The original Marsh came out in... 1922. 1922. And then 32. And then 32. And then it ends up... Thousand Eyes of Dr. Mabuse is his last film in 1960. But then here comes the fourth installment right away. It comes rushing into the room, and we get it in 1961, right off the bat. And then the subsequent sequels, there were two Mabusa films that came out in 1962. So yeah, you've got all this time that's spread out and then all of a sudden, you know, rapid succession here we get a we get a bunch more. And that's something that is so distinctly different about, you know, if we're talking about these films in conversation. Th- yeah, the auteur like, has left the arena. He's left the know? building, yeah. The auteur has left the building. And yeah, I think that's yeah, a good sort of departure point, you know, the difference between obviously the fourth installment of the dead and the fourth installment of Mabuza is that authorial vision. And again, like I mentioned earlier, Lang's vision of Mabusa is sort of ever shifting. In the twenties, the character was, you know, as much of a supervillain that he was, he was attacking a corrupt society, Weimar, uh, you know, this society that ultimately, yeah, produced the Nazis, among other things, right? And so Testament is sort of like the prequel to Hitler, you know, and he's like using Mabuza as an analogy to the rise of the Nazis. And so A Thousand Eyes then is like the postscript and the legacy of Nazism sort of living on because it's all about this hotel and people are being spied on in this hotel that was built by the Nazis. And so there's these connections that Lang is making to the surveillance state and the ghosts of totalitarianism past. And so you like... I think also with an eye to, you know, East Germany and sure. the the other side of the Iron Curtain, right? Absolutely. You know, like Romero, sort of every time he, you know, had something to say, he would make a, a dead film or, or work that into the dead film. Lang was very similar in what he did with Mabuza. And so in this case, it's like the fourth installment is sort of like the taming of the series or the remolding of the series into a more, uh, yeah, commercial kind of format. Yeah. And I mean, you know, one of the things that I find amusing sometimes in the fourth film in a franchise is that in distilling the series down to its um the elements that the preceding films share it almost feels like a comedic reenactment about the things that you like in the original films because this one feels way more like an actual comic book than the preceding films do. It's just event after event after event. It's like spy versus spy. Yeah. You know? <laughs> Absolutely, it really is. And, you know, another thing that really made me laugh about The Return of Dr. Mabusa as a fourth installment is it does one of my favorite things that is distinct about the fourth film in a series, and that is because a figure in the film has died or been presumed dead and then brought back so many times there's almost something implied in the fourth film in a lot of series of just 
what does it even mean to be alive? What constitutes living? Like how, if your threat lives on well past um, how long you were expected to live. I mean, I, I was even thinking of Mabusa like Michael Myers from Halloween or like Jason well, from Friday the 13th. And it's like this accidental, like, what is life? What is living? I thought he was dead. How does this work? How does this keep haunting me? A very appropriate question to ask after we just talked about George Romero's zombie series, you <laughs> yeah. know? Like, it's a very appropriate question. <laughs> sure, and we should say, yeah, so like the, the general plot uh, of the re- the return of Dr. Mabuza is that uh, Mabuza, presumed, long presumed dead, is once again back as he was in the previous year where that's also the plot where he's long presumed dead and he's back manipulating, uh, you know, a series of... Everyone. Of, yeah, everyone <laughs> through a series of criminal, criminal uh, acts. And he uh, once again seeks sort of like, you know, d- domination and destruction uh, of the world, particularly through uh, this prison and using prisoners to make a sort of chemical drug that turns people into zombies. And they use the term zombies explicitly in the film several times in sort of his plan once again to hypnotize the the population at large. It is funny that there's a zombie reference and since it's pre-Romero, the guy's like, zombies, what are zombies? He's like, that's an old Caribbean, you know, myth, <laughs> which was pretty amusing, that's right. you know. Because Romero, to to his credit, he said in the original Night of the Living Dead, they never used the term zombie mm-hmm. in right. the original. Like, he's right. like, I didn't even think to use that word or whatever you know right and so in uh so in the fourth installment here we also have another really great thing about franchises right which is they bring back a beloved character inspector loman inspector loman was first in the fritz lang film m and then also in testament of dr mabuza as this sort of proto columbo inspector this kind of affable comic unassuming kind of german yeah yeah, like german german columbo german yeah he's this kind of like sympathetic comic uh figure who's chasing all these dastardly people and so he of course he's he's not in thousand eyes but gert frub is gert frub plays a character named inspector crass and it's identical to how he plays loman and so they bring gert frub back as Inspector Loman for the first time in like 40 years. And I was so, you know, like, I didn't know how, like, how this film was going to be at all. And when in the opening, Loman is like uh, about to go fishing on vacation with his like German family, and there's a very comical scene at home, I was like, Oh, I'm in. I'm yeah, into this. I was know? losing it at the opening scene, how extremely German it was. He was like going through his gear and he's like, oh, this will be nice wool for those cold mountain winds. And then his boy walks in. And he's like, the beer is loaded. You know, and he's just, <laughs> he's so funny. Yeah, it is like, yeah, he, he comes charging in at the beginning of this film, this little domestic ritual, getting ready for vacation. But then lo and behold, you know, 
there was an incident on the train and his vacation uh, cut, cut short. short. Yeah. That's right. Before he even gets to go, he's got to deal with, yeah, uh, a series of criminal incidents, which uh, includes very early on the uh, complete flamethrowering of a woman uh, on the side of the street through like a slot in a laundry van. In a van that kind of reminded me of the caravan that they're using in Land of the Dead, you know, kind of like the slotted weapons sort of sticking out. And I was like thinking, about them it is a pretty shocking uh death too like i was, really I was amazed like that violence like you see this like woman like in flames yeah and her flopping body, around yeah, her heels burning on the yeah. ground like there was quite a few moments in this movie where i was like damn this is kind of violent i like, mean people are <laughs> dropping dead like every five minutes in it it's crazy it's like they they have one word with a witness and then it's like bam he's gone like ah there's a silencer in the crowd like shit we lost another one you know car bombs fake outs yeah all kinds of people stuff. getting d- dissolved in acid even after they were dead so an autopsy couldn't be performed it's crazy. It's just like nonstop. Well, again, yeah, I mean, you know, obviously the lasting power of the Mabuza character is that he can be anywhere or manifest anywhere or manipulate anything anywhere, right? This all-pervading kind of terror or horror that Mabuza represents. And I do think the film, yeah, really, while sort of slotting it more into a comic book mode, it does a really good job of still having that sort of paranoia and that just nonstop you know, just so many shots of like suspicious people on the streets or shadowy recurring characters. You know, a guy moving a little cart on the street or driving a laundry truck. Is that guy an assassin? You know, and all these kinds of, yeah, just like heighten, heightening the mood always. But yeah, it's like anytime Loman talks to someone in his investigation, like three minutes later, they are exploding or being lit on fire. Uh, and it's, yeah, it's brutal. It doesn't pay to talk to Loman. That's for <laughs> no, sure. No, I mean, he even has that funny line where he says, like, witnesses always start to get afraid once they finally get interesting. And then they start withholding information. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah. <laughs> they saw what happened to the other four. Yeah, but it is funny because it, it does, it's always just so surprising when you watch something that was, like, you know, designed as populist entertainment at the time, but it still has all this, like, craftsmanship. I think I went in with really low expectations for the return of Dr. Mabusa, and I ended up being, like, pretty charmed throughout, mainly because it was just, like, nonstop. It was, like, always weird and surprising me with all this random stuff. I mean, you know, you were talking about the prison a little bit, and I think that would be a good thing to talk about next is the way the prison, like, functions in this film and the, the weird space that's created, right? Like, you've got all the prisoners who are, instead of, you know, like, making... License plates? Yeah, instead of making mm-hmm. license plates, they're, 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 like, doing little They're in a fucking chem lab. Yeah. 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 They're it's making Mabuza juice. Yeah. yeah, Mabuza juice, totally. That should be your first inclination that something is wrong at this prison. <laughs> yeah, like, no you've got your prisoners working with, like... Well, actually, <laughs> even before that, even before that, you know, Loman, he's pretty sharp, usually, and he usually cracks the case, but I gotta say, he goes to visit the director of the prison, Director Wolf, and in Director Wolf's office are busts, statues, little busts of mass murderers. And he, you know, of course, Loman's like, what's the deal with this? And he gives this response, right, where he's just like, Yeah, es sind wirklich sehr gelungene Plastiken. Es sind die Nachbildungen der größten Massenmörder der letzten Zeit. Ich möchte sie immer vor Augen haben. So, 
Das hilft mir zu einer gewissen Härte, die mein ja nicht alltäglicher Beruf leider erfordert. But you know right out that something in this prison is fucked up because, yeah, there's just like mass murderers everywhere yeah, looking idols at you. of mass murderers like normal lining, yeah lining the walls of this guy's office it should be pointed out too that this like this this doctor character at this at this prison he's got just such a terrible looking like goatee and jet black hair and these ridiculous yeah. glasses that it's like the minute you see this guy it's like <laughs> this guy's there's nothing right with this he's notably uh, an italian actor as ah. well so sort of like othered in the in yeah. the context of all he's these very... very german faces yeah. and so yeah one of the other like main threads of the film that obviously made me laugh is the inclusion of the chicago syndicate into the proceedings and that's really what sets off the film is when you know the first murder is a, a callback to the original dr mabuza film a guy's on a train and he has a an attache case handcuffed to his arm and he is like murdered and it's stolen which is also how yeah the original sort of opens and it's found out that it's related to a mob case you know evidence or, or witness statements in a mob case and so ultimately at the heart of the film dr mabuza unseen is trying to broker a deal with the chicago syndicate to ship this hypnotic drug all over the world so he can turn everyone into his zombies and so enter into the story the sort of blustering american played by lex barker Joe Como, a.k.a. Nick Scapio. And this guy just like blusters into the movie, is like hitting on the, the lead female character, being very brusque. Uh, and then he reveals he's an FBI agent. And then he reveals that he's secretly working for the mob. And then it is later revealed that he's actually just an FBI agent. Uh, yeah, that was something I was like having such a hard time <laughs> tracking so through this movie. Was like, is it Joe Como or is it Nick Scapio? Like, which is it? Was haben Sie zu sagen? Mein Name ist Nick Scapio, Verbindungsmann des Syndikats von Chicago und Partner der verstorbenen Mrs. Pizarro. Ich weiß. Für die Polizei bin ich Joe Como, FBI. Meine Papiere sind prima in Ordnung. Umso besser, was sagt Chicago? Das Syndikat nimmt ihr Angebot an unter einer Bedingung. And even by the end, and it was like celebrating that he's like still alive. I'm like, wait, is this a celebration? Like, I was, I thought we had reverted back to him being like a bad guy. Because I, I thought, was so confused. Yeah, I was like, I was like, I thought there was a point where they, they, they got his fingerprint, you know, yeah. like because he had these FBI documents, and then he explains to Mabuza's guys. He goes, I know, I'm not really FBI. I've just got really good documents, you know, <laughs> that say, but I'm Nick Scapio. I'm your hookup from the syndicate. So then later, Loman's, uh, his like second in command or whatever, they, they get a fingerprint from Joe Como and they send it to the FBI. The FBI said to them, that's not Joe Como. It's Nick Scapio. And they, they like, didn't they like reveal that? And then they I said so. like, but you know, yeah, they did the triple reversal though, because in the end, it's revealed that yeah, he was just working deep cover. Oh my god! Yeah. So by the <laughs> end, exactly. I know, I know, and and I do want to point out. I don't know if you guys like looked this up or knew this, but the actor famously played Tarzan uh, after Johnny Weissmuller, Lex Barker. So that blustering FBI yeah. mob guy. Uh, went on to jaw. yeah. Went on to just Tarzan. 
he's kind of Tarzan in through this movie a bit too. He's sort of the the action component yeah. to the Moments like investigation, right? Yeah. He's like the the young fit, you know, punch a guy out, you know. <laughs> there is a, one of my favorite parts of the film is this fist fight with one of the like giant zombie prisoners whose uh, his name is Sandro and he kind of reminds me of Tor Johnson from the Ed Wood films yes. mm-hmm. like he looks exactly like him and there's this really amazing fight sequence where he's sort of like one of those roly poly wobbly toys like those toys that have the rounded bottom that you like can't knock over because they just like pop right back up. Up. And it's like every time he gets punched and he lands on the ground, he like rolls around like he's a big ball, and then he hops right back up, and you just you can't keep the guy on the ground. Yeah, and then he picks up a massive fucking tire that's on fire and, <laughs> yeah. and throws it at them both. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah, that's a great scene too because it's like yeah, the two main male characters bonding over just like beating the shit out of this guy. Yeah, that's really when he endears himself, I think, to Loman. When Loman's like, all right, this guy, I can I can work with this guy. You know, he's going to be helpful to me. But yeah, I really couldn't keep up with the... Because <laughs> <laughs> no. then at a certain point, he goes undercover as a prisoner. Joe Como goes undercover as a prisoner, so then he has like a third name, yes. a third identity. Because when Mabuza like confronts him later, he's like, Joe Como alias Nick Scapio, alias, and then whatever his third name was, <laughs> he, keeps, he keeps telling everybody, I'm on your side. I mean, I couldn't keep up with it. Yeah. And then he has, like, I couldn't tell if he was supposed to be in love with the woman that's, like, following the case throughout. I mean, maybe they sort of bond in the end. Oh, there, yeah, because they have that sort of, like, attempted, you know, lovemaking scene that's interrupted. But, yeah, so there's, like, yeah, the other main character is this woman who is a, a, a supposed to be some kind of journalist or photographer, but it turns out her father is the chemist who is in prison making the secret sauce for Mabuza. Mabuza. (laughs) Yeah, the Mabuza juice. And so, yeah, she has this sort of like fling uh, with Joe, a.k.a. Nick, a.k.a. uh, another name. Um, (laughs) And it's a fairly formulaic kind of thing. And again, I I think this is interesting from the perspective that it's like the first mold of the new line of Dr. Mabuza, right? Because I was thinking, too, and I look, I enjoyed this film quite a bit. Simple Pleasures. And and I should point out, too, like the director, Harold Reimel, is, I, I haven't seen anything he's done, but I read about him, and he was a TV-slash-film genre workhorse, just churned these things out and he was a very big part of this whole sort of crime subgenre movement in germany and he does bring some like stylistic flourishes to the film it is it's got the same cinematographer as the lang film but the lang film is very static and kind of this like awkwardly stilted old man kind of movie yeah it it has this very similar energy to countess of hong kong because it's just like (laughs) really sleepy everyone's moving really slow it takes a long time for people to like cross a room you know it, it has a lot of that so this is like a, it's as if you took thousand eyes and like you know stabbed a needle full of adrenaline in its chest and then it like woke up and you know was frantic and hopping all yeah, over and the gave place. it a brassy jazz score yeah, right totally. oh the jazz score is very present i wrote like i had notes that just kept saying jazz a lot because every time you know jazz intensifies uh, it is. <laughs> 
Yeah, it's, it's got that jazzy vibe and the, the the camera work is, you know, the same cinematographer, but a much more kind of fluid Hollywood-y kind of action style that fits the material quite well, you mm-hmm. know? I mean, well, so much of Hollywood stylings were referencing the original Dr. Mabuza films. So, like, there's sort of like a reciprocal relationship going on there. And I, I, I think that the director of, of this fourth installment has a clearly has a bit of reverence and respect uh, oh, it seemed like Fritz. everyone involved sort of, yeah, inheriting the project was like, oh, this is the shit we grew up with, right? The generation of, you know, people making this movie were much younger than Fritz Lang and looked up to him and up to the series as yeah. this great sort of cinematic achievement in Germany. I mean, well, there's a whole set piece in this film that's lifted from spies where they're trapped in the room and all the water's flooding in and they have like no way to get out and they try to, you know, break through with a pipe into the into the brick and then eventually they pull a gas line and he blows the doors open by like holding his arm above the water with a lighter. But that happens in Spies, that like that same sequence. And a variation of that happens in Testament as well where the man and the woman are trapped in this room that there's a bomb that's going to go off and right. they can't get out of the room. So yeah, like <laughs> almost all... All of the films have a character sort of trapped in a room that's, yeah, either filling up with water or bombs. And there's also lots of um, Mabuza speaking through other people and lots of fake speakers outs. Speakers as yeah, well. Yeah, speakers. Oh, yeah, because there's the whole, there's a whole church sort of element of the story where there's this kind of suspicious priest who has written a book about evil. Called the Devil's Anatomy. Father Briefenstein. <laughs> <laughs> and he uh, he has a chapter in his book on Dr. Mabuza, and it turns out, yeah, he is kind of a an apostle. I love that, though, because that book, when they, like, he, he finds this, like, charred book that was on the woman, right? That's how he finds the book in right. the beginning. And he opens it up, and it's this book on, you know, the Devil's Anatomy, and, and the table of contents is, like, vampire myths, werewolf myths, Mabuza myths. Yeah. It's like Mabuza is on the level of these other mythical creatures of evil, totally. you know, folklore and stuff. It's like, like that. the canonization of Mabuza, like and that's actually one of the, you know, things I liked is the ending of the film when even though, you know, he sort of vanquished for the time being, Loman and Voss, you know, have their moment where it's like is he still alive? Is he still out there? The specter will will never know until the next time, yep. right? Uh, so it is, yeah, to your point, like this Mike Myers, like he just can't die. But there's also been, right, there's been, I think throughout the series, uh, implications at times that Mabuza is almost like this force that possess, has the ability to possess people, right? That it's like through possession. That though you may kill his earthly form, this specter of, of evil and control and power and domination will find another vessel. Kind of like the devil, right? That, you know, there was like a specific line about that. Yeah, the devil wants uh, admiration. Right. Whether it's this person or that, it's it's going to find another form and, and still have the same goal of, of being this, you know, world-dominating force. And again, when you think about even recent German history from when this was made, like, it makes sense, right? Because the whole idea is this, people no longer believe in Mabusa, right? They no longer believe it is just a myth in the same way that 
all that all that fascist Nazi stuff was just a myth, right? We're Germany. We're that was uh, seems like a distant memory, right? We've moved so far beyond that, but really, this is a reminder that kind of force can exist and pop up anywhere, right? And that if we do only view it as a myth, it has even more power. It's it's even that much more likely to find another vessel if we forget, if we don't remember the threat, you know, that it does really uh, hold. And I mean, I think a lot of fourth installments accidentally make that argument that you just made so eloquently. It's the idea that evil or some sort of force can live on and that is what constitutes living in terms of the canon of the film series, you know? Like, you wonder, is this the same human form? But it is, like, there's it's something that's, like, always returning. And it's funny at the end of Mabuza where they sort of make these new rules about, you know, you're talking about, like, they're looking at the crowd and they're like, oh, he could be anybody. And that's because they give him, like, a Mission Impossible-style realistic mask that he pulls off at the end. Like, it's, like, this fake-out where he's like, like, oh, it was you all along. He's like, no, I'm actually Dr. Mabusa. And then he like rips the flesh off of his face and then he throws that sweaty mask in uh, Frova's <laughs> face and he gets like a face full of Mabusa which I thought was really funny. Well that's a really great moment because again that calls back to the previous film where Wolfgang Priest plays three characters including ultimately Dr. Mabusa and so he's reprising his role in that John Woo Mission Impossible 2 Ah, of course, the prison director. I knew it was you. And he's like, Glauben Sie mir, Zuchthausdirektor Wolf haben Sie niemals kennengelernt. Den musste ich schon viel früher beseitigen, um seinen Platz einnehmen zu können. Denn nicht einmal Sie haben bemerkt, dass ich die ganze Zeit über nur seine Maske trug. Ich bin auch nicht der Erbe von Dr. Mabuse. Mabuse lebt noch. Ich bin Dr. Mabuse. Mabuse. Ich lebe. Yeah. Rips his face off. I know. I thought he was just going to take off like the goatee and the glasses, <laughs> but he took the whole face because the goatee looks fake, the hair looks fake, everything is fake, and he take the whole thing comes off. But I wanted to say, you know, one of the things in this film is Mabuza's big attack, his citywide attack on the chemical plant, is going to be on. Friday the 13th, Uh, uh, very pointedly. So maybe a little foreshadowing there. And something interesting I read was that this film was released on... Friday the 13th uh, in Germany. Yeah, you leave the theater going, Mabuza's doing the, a chemical attack yeah. right now. Clearly influenced another German director we've talked about yeah. on yeah. this say, podcast, yeah, Roland Emmerich, who released <laughs> Independence Day on Independence Day weekend. Yeah, yeah oh. very similar energy and strategy. <laughs> Absolutely. (laughs) Oh, my God. Yeah. One other just like random thing that I appreciated about the movie is the uh, use of the player piano as a metaphor for the hidden hand of of Dr. Mabuza. There's a bar in the film that has a player piano, and it's this recurring space throughout the film, the CD bar, where, yeah, Loman's got that great showdown where he goes to see this guy who's sitting in the shadows, and they have have an old-fashioned duel. They have a quick draw in this, like, tiny little office. And, of course, as an audience member, you're led to believe he's shooting Mabuza. And then it's like, no, haha, it's the other guy mm-hmm. or whatever. And uh, <laughs> anyway, but, yeah, the player piano, nice touch uh, again. Gaddis uh, would have liked it. Of course. Well, yeah, you know. And- There's so many little flourishes and touches like that that really speak to 
the idea of Mabuza that was built in the first, you know, certainly in the Lang films, right? Yeah, all the, the objects of this world and not seeing the hand behind the object, you know, or seeing objects that get manipulated and this just spreads to this this constant presence, right? That there's this unseen figure that's pulling all of these strings, you know, <laughs> that that's, that is almost like a supernatural force, you know, whether it is loudspeakers that suddenly, you know, Mabuza's voice starts coming through, a piano that's playing by itself, the various like bombs and things that just seem to sort of like be thrown by no one, you know, you never really see who's behind any of this stuff. There's so many of those objects, you know, that just create this constant paranoia and sense of like unease where you're always looking over your shoulder. Yeah, because there's and even, nothing is there. Yeah, because you know? even that scene when someone is uh like when they find the dead body and then he's like about to reveal some information and all of a sudden it's revealed he's like shot with a silencer. Even though they keep cutting to that guy that's at the scene of all of these crimes, it's not even necessarily he's not implied. The trigger man. Yeah, no. he's not the trigger man. He's mm-hmm. just there to watch and make sure everything goes according to plan. And I would say on another level, again going back to you know some of the ideas that were obviously part of what Lang was going after with the rise of Nazism and the rise of fascism. Again, you know, this idea in in Germany and for a lot of Germans, you know, that as the events of of the war ended and unfolded and you have the, the war crime tribunals, you know, there was this constant sense of trying to place the blame somewhere else, trying to take the responsibility off of you and put it on us. I was following orders. I was simply doing this. Like I, you know, it was always this, like that there was someone else who really was the one who was murdering and killing and exterminating and all this stuff. And again, you you, you see that sort of play out here, whether it's intentional or merely in the, the subconscious of, of Germans, the sense of like, misplaced guilt and responsibility for crimes being committed and no one really knowing who is ultimately to blame. Like, is it Mabusa? But did he pull the trick? Like it was someone else, right? Again, it's this idea of, of saying like either no one's a killer or everyone's a killer. Couldn't have said it better myself. Yeah. Yeah. Cause uh, yeah, I guess like one thing I noticed very pointedly, right? Cause this is only a year after thousand eyes and there are, no explicit references to the Nazis. And while baked into Mabuza is, yeah, all of just the inherent elements of totalitarianism or Nazism that are just kind of part of the character's DNA. And so while, yeah, they maybe they don't have the guts to, like, Lang to just be, like, connecting Mabuza to the Nazis explicitly, but it still has that vibe whether they're saying it or not. So yeah, it's sort of interesting. Mabuza hopping from film to film, he's taking on a life of his own or at least carrying with that tradition, even as the sort of new approach is kind of dulling the political a little bit. It's still there. Absolutely. There's like a line in there. I I wrote down, you know, and like one of the goals of Mabuza is like to turn, turn the world or the nation into obedient killers. Right. And I mean, come on, that's if that's not also referencing, of course, what happened to this nation, you know, only 20 years earlier. Like, I don't know what is, you know. Yeah. (laughs) One thing I found interesting too, uh, just some other people who were involved in the film. And yeah, the spy versus spy sort of joke you made earlier made me think that 
the film was co-written by an American named Mark Bem, who was known for writing Help, but also Charade. One of the, yeah, sort of, I guess, great spy-ish mm-hmm. movies of that period. To spy a rom-com? Yeah, yeah, and that movie has a very, like, ridiculous sort of, like, sense of, of, yeah, you know, pace and character, this big ensemble. And so just thinking about that, he was like an expat who moved to France and worked in the European film mm-hmm. industry. And, you know, I think I was, when I was watching it, I was also, like, obviously thinking of, like, you know, what was really to to start blowing up in the world of cinema, uh, like James Bond, you know, around this time. Mm -hmm. And that on a certain level to me, this was a lot more fun than a lot of James Bond movies I've seen. (laughs) It's a much higher energy than the early Bond films, for sure. Definitely, definitely. This movie makes From Russia With Love feel like a, like an Angelopoulos film to me. Like, <laughs> Without a doubt, yeah. You know, I just like look back at From What You Would Love and I feel like it's just people sitting in a train like staring out the window. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and yeah, Gert really brings it as Loman. He's a very like pleasant... Who uh, would become one of the, the the most famous Bond villains of all time, right? Or a Goldfinger. Yeah, well, he certainly shows off his chops in The Return of Dr. Mabusa. And I think he's in some of the subsequent ones as well, so... Uh, I'm definitely going to I'm gonna keep on this train and uh, watch some more of these for oh, sure. Oh, definitely. More installments to come. Yeah, again, both of these. Yeah, like there's there's some wild titles, right? Like you got 1963's uh, Scotland Yard Hunts Dr. Mabuza, a.k.a. Oh. A- a- Dr. Mabuza versus Scotland Yard. The Secret of Dr. Mabuza, a.k.a. The Death Ray of Dr. Mabuza. That sounds Is great. the Death Ray his secret? Like, <laughs> I guess it's that. It's like, here's the secret. The secret's the Death Ray. Yeah. We're going to bury the lead on that. Because I was really like, honestly, yeah, after watching both of these films, I think they did what any good fourth installment does. Make me want to watch the fifth installment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's another like major, just like functional purpose <laughs> of the fourth film is to get you to see the fifth one. To keep the whole show going. <laughs> yeah, you know? totally. Yeah, and I would say, yeah, in, in both of these, you know, I'm going to keep it going. I'm going to keep it moving. There was one other thing that I was thinking about um, in uh, in Mabuza that I thought was kind of interesting, and I wonder what what you guys think about it. But something that I found really interesting because we were talking about whether consciously or not reconciling with the past, you know, and Nazi Germany in this very dark period. But now we're in, you know, West Germany. We're in this rebuilt under the eyes of Britain, France, and particularly the United States of America. Joe Como, FBI. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Alias Nick Scapio. Uh, yeah, you know, the Chicago... Right? We're, we're under the eyes of this, and so there's, you know, we're looking at this, like, rebuilt Western Germany, you know, ascendant. And I thought something that was very interesting was that in the climax, Mabuza is sending his legions to attack a nuclear power plant. And I thought it was really interesting, right, that it was sort of like this this thing. And you see the German, you know, like police and militia, whoever, like fighting and defending the, the nuclear power plant. And, you know, that power plant was, I would venture to say, like this sort of gift of the Americans, you know. And again, this idea of an ascendant new Germany. Yeah, the economic miracle. And where are these forces going? Like they're going to attack this this progress. They want to set things back. They want to take this away. And this idea of nuclear power as this you know, Western... Yeah, this post-war symbol. Because, yeah, I did get that vibe a lot. And I guess, yeah, one of the 
the things I had thought of, you know, like I mentioned earlier, the sort of dulling of the political elements of the film. But I was thinking that there's no way Lang would have ever offered up such a full-throated defense of the West German security forces, right? Because, yeah, you know, having a, an oddball detective that you like in a film is one thing, but this film at the end of the day is saying like, yeah, the German state police got this under control. And then we all know from the rest of 20th century history that Certainly that's not the case. <laughs> yeah, definitely, definitely. But but it, it's also funny in the sense that, man, these guys are throwing a lot of bullets around, like, uh, right outside of the power plant, you know? Like, these guys are set yeah. up, like, right on the edge of that thing. And you got machine guns and explosions going off. There's, like, a fire right next to it. I gotta <laughs> say, too, like, I feel like, you know, g- uh, give it up to Romero zombies, because they never quit. And Mabuza zombies in this film, they just, like, give up after, like, the, the German police fire, like, a bunch of rounds at them. They all kind of just throw their hands up. And I was thinking, this serum must not be very good if, like... They're not committed to the cause. They really are not committed to the cause at all. As soon as that guy that was, like, saying that thing over and over again, like, our lord and savior is Dr. Mabuza, as soon as that guy, like, took a bullet, they really lost their steam, you know? That's true. He was rallying the troops. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, I think it's it's an interesting connection, uh, to say the least, that certainly when Lang was was looking at the series and then what it became, it's this idea of people being, you know, manipulated, these sort of mindless figures, right, that are just sort of, of carrying out some sort of will, will that they might not even understand. You know, they certainly don't have the motivation or the desire themselves to do this thing, right? That both are these, I think, comments on, like, people and what drives people to do the things they do and how often that remains obscured from them. You know, Romero zombies, as you you even said earlier, and, and a point that's made, I think, in several of the films is, you know, that these aren't different creatures or seeing them as different creatures is is part of our failure you know characters throughout the series are saying like they're us and we're them i think again it's this this commentary in romero films like well who are the zombies really like are they bad guys or are we the bad guys are we all the bad guys you know because and similarly right it's like is mabuza inside all of us is the the Nazism or the fascism ready to emerge at any moment inside all of us? Are we ready to be manipulated? Yes. Yes, that's exactly it. So, Ryan, you uh, you came up with the fourth installment as our topic, so I think it's time to, to flip it around and ask you, what are some of your fourth installment favorites? Well, one I'll say really quickly is Silent Night, Deadly Night 4. And in particular, that entire series is pretty remarkable. The only weak link is the second one, which is primarily a clip show retelling of the first with about 20 minutes of original footage. But then you've got the third one that is directed by Monty Hellman. And then this fourth one is Clint Howard in the lead role, which has only happened a couple times. And it's always a mistake, but it's always fascinating. And then the fifth one takes place in like a toy store with Mickey Rooney as like a psychopath also worth watching. Um, I would say, though, that my 
all-time favorite fourth installment and one of just my favorite films in general and probably my favorite sequel ever made is Phantasm IV Oblivion, which I've heard very aptly described. Um, Someone wrote, it's sort of like the Finnegan's Wake of direct-to-video sequels. And it's another film that gets a lot of its charm and power from its very low budget. And one of the things it does that's so unique, and I even find like kind of revolutionary um, in terms of its form, is it takes deleted scenes from the original Phantasm, which was from 1979, and this film's in 1988. It takes those scenes and then uses them, it repurposes them in Phantasm 4, not as flashbacks, but as the characters in 4, like the minds of the characters in 4, inhabiting the bodies of their younger selves. So they cut the deleted scenes in a unique way, as if their minds have been transported back in time. It's a remarkable achievement. Um, but so next week, Marsh, it's your turn to pick the theme. What do you what do you got for us? Well, as I often do, I was thinking of one of my favorite television shows, Murder She Wrote. And I was thinking, you know, we've uh, had a lot of a lot of boy directors so far, you know, a lot of boys running around with cameras. And I thought might as well mix it up a little bit. And so the topic for next week is Murder, She Wrote. I want you to bring films directed by women that concern murder and other fun stuff. How does that sound? Challenge accepted. As always, you can follow us on Twitter at Gauntlet Movies or send us an email at gauntletmoviepodcast at gmail.com. Let us know what you think of uh, the show. You know, maybe uh, say some nice things about my comrades. Some fourth installments that yeah. we haven't thought of. Share Whatever. your yeah. favorite fourth installments with us. Yeah, online at Gauntlet Movies. Thanks, everybody. There's no time for funeral arrangements. There's no time to take a hole so you can drop these things in the ground. As long as we're alive, they ain't never gonna run out of food. The day they do, it'll mean only one thing. We're all dead. This is not only a local or a regional phenomenon. Cities are under siege. Corpe morte mangiati. Catastrofa shatova. If these creatures ever develop the power to think, to reason, even in the most primitive way. People are said to be establishing outposts in big cities and raiding small rural towns for supplies, like outlaws.